Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians, we will be looking this morning at verses 12 to 28. Verses 12 to 28. If you're using uh, one of the Bibles that's provided for you there in one of the chairs around you, you'll find our passage on page 961. Page 961. All right, I'll begin reading for us in verse 12. This is God's word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we're so grateful for your word, and Lord, we praise you for this opportunity that we have to go through 1 Corinthians 15, and Father, I pray that as we consider the reality of the resurrection this morning, I pray, Father, that the life of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit, would invade our own hearts and lives, and we would be changed and transformed for your glory. So, Father, we ask for resurrection power during this time. And we thank you that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is available. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. I entitled this message, The Ultimate Game Changer. A game changer is an event 
or a person or an idea that results in a significant breakthrough or a significant change in the way that we think about things or do things. And, and there's a whole array of game changers that we could think about in different fields. So there are game changers in sports. We think about Jackie Robinson or Larry Bird or Michael Jordan. These are all individuals that have changed the way that we think about the game or play the game. You think about other fields like science or technology, there are a number of game changers that have occurred in science and technology. So you think about the printing press, the automobile, the personal computer. These are things that have changed really the history of the world. There are game changers in terms of events, there are game changers in history. So you think about the fall of Rome or the Protestant Reformation, or the signing of the Declaration of Independence, or space exploration. All of these were game changers. They changed the way that we did life. They changed the way we thought about things. So these are people, events, ideas that resulted in a breakthrough or a significant shift in the way that we thought about things or did things. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 wants us to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is hands down the greatest game changer that has ever occurred in the history of the world. It is the ultimate game changer. It changes everything for you, for me, and actually for the cosmos, for all of God's creation. And so to persuade us that the resurrection is the ultimate game changer, Paul actually presents us here in our verses with, first of all, the consequences of Jesus not being raised. So if we were to consider, if Jesus was not raised, what would be the consequences of that? He presents us with that first in verses 12 through 19. And then Paul presents us with the certainty of the Christian's resurrection in verses 20 to 28. So let's look at each one of these in part. First of all, the consequences of Jesus not being raised. This is found in verses 12 through 19. Now as we look at these verses, one thing we might want to ask right up front is, why does Paul, in writing this letter to the Corinthians, why does he choose to devote an entire chapter just to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What's the problem, what's the concern that Paul is seeking to address? I mean, this is a rather long chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the entire thing is devoted to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's the most extensive teaching on the resurrection found in the Bible. Well, in verse 12, Paul identifies for us the reason for him writing this chapter. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, here it is, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is why Paul is writing this chapter. There are some believers there in Corinth who are denying the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is astonished. He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then in the following verses, verses 14 through 18, Paul kind of engages in a thought experiment. He says, okay, let's just run with this for a minute. let's Let's just think about this. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if no one has ever been raised and no one will ever be raised, then of course that means Christ himself has not been raised either. 
And if that is true, let's just think about this for a moment. What would be the consequences if Jesus had never been raised from the dead? And then in the following verses, he gives six consequences of Jesus not being raised. Look there in verse 14. The first consequence is that Paul's preaching is in vain. In verse 14, Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Now, why would Paul say that? Why would he say his preaching is in vain? Because what Paul is saying is, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then everything we've proclaimed to you is a lie. It's a falsehood. And one of the things we learn here, just from Paul's statement here, is how critical truth is in the act of preaching. You know when you go to hear someone preach or or you have the opportunity to hear a preacher? What that individual says about truth, about reality, about the gospel, about who Jesus is, in particular about the resurrection, is far more important than how smart they are or how gifted they are or their communication skills. It's not that those things are completely irrelevant But it is far more important the message they are proclaiming. Because Paul is saying this, listen, if they get the message wrong, if they get the gospel wrong, if they get the most important thing wrong, namely the glory of God and the salvation of your soul, then what they are doing is absolutely empty, vain, futile, pointless. Truth is absolutely essential in the proclamation of God's salvation. And Paul says here that preaching that fudges on the resurrection is empty preaching. A second consequence if Jesus was not raised from the dead is that the Corinthians' faith is in vain. You see it there in verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. Now, the reason Paul says this is because the faith that they had was a faith that was based upon the message that Paul had proclaimed. And the message he proclaimed was the resurrection of Jesus. And this is instructive for us because, you know, it's popular today to say or to believe that faith in and of itself is virtuous. People say this, right? People say, I'm a person of faith. That could be be an okay thing. just depends on what you mean by that. Other people might say, and, and, and this is... This is like a philosophy that many people live by. It doesn't really matter what you believe. It just matters that you believe. That sounds deep, doesn't it? It doesn't really matter what you believe. It just matters that you believe. And what does Paul say? Paul says hogwash, right? Because Paul was southern, right? He says hogwash. That's ridiculous. That's nonsense. Paul says, no, faith in and of itself is not virtuous. The value of faith is measured by its object. What are you placing your faith in? What are you trusting? What are you hoping in? Is it worthy of your faith and of your confidence and of your trust? Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. Third consequence, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are misrepresenting God. You see it there in verse 15 and 16. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ 
has been raised. So understand this. Paul is saying, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, Paul is saying, I, as an apostle, and the other apostles, we didn't just make a mistake. Right? We we didn't just kind of get it wrong a little bit. In fact, what we have done is we have lied about God. We've lied about who he is. We've lied about who Jesus is. We've lied about uh, how we can know salvation and experience the forgiveness of sins. We have misrepresented God. And this is not only true for Paul, it's true for all the apostles and all the witnesses that Paul mentioned back in verses 1 through 11, if you were here last week for that, where Paul talked about how Peter and, uh, and the other apostles and James and the 500 witnesses had all borne testimony that they saw the resurrected Christ. Paul is saying, listen, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, all of us are liars, It's not that just, oh, well, those were really good people who wrote the Bible, but they just got a few things wrong. Paul doesn't allow for that. Paul says, no, this is not complicated. Either we saw him or we did not. And if we did not see him, then we are lying. We are misrepresenting God. You know, on this point, it is remarkable That all these witnesses who said they saw the resurrected Christ. It is remarkable that after that, especially as we think about the apostles. After that, they suffered greatly for this claim. In fact, as it relates to the original twelve, all of them, their lives, from historical records we believe, end in martyrdom. But there was not one of them who broke ranks. Isn't that remarkable? Not one of them broke ranks. Not one of them said, you know, it's gotten so hard, the persecution. You know, I'm so fearful of death that, okay, I'll admit it. I just lied. I didn't see him. I just made it up. That didn't happen. Not one of them broke rank. There was this consistent, unwavering commitment that they had seen him. And they were committed to that truth, even unto death. The fourth consequence, Paul says, if, there is no resur- if Christ has not been raised from the dead, is that the Corinthians' faith is futile. You see it in verse 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now this is similar to what he said back in verse 14. But here he says, back there in verse 14, he was saying that their faith is in vain because it is based on false preaching. And a false message. But here he says that their faith is futile because, and this leads to the fifth consequence, they are still in their sins. You see it there in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So when Jesus died on the cross, what was Jesus doing when he died on the cross? Jesus was paying the penalty for our sins. Paul established that back in verse 3 of this chapter when he said, He, that is Jesus, died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And the ultimate penalty for sin is death. But when Jesus paid the penalty of sin in full, it was paid completely. Death had to release him. It had to let him go. There was no more penalty to be paid. And so Jesus was raised from the dead. 
Now, in that sense, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's confirmation, stamp of approval that the penalty of sin has been paid in full. But Paul says here, if Jesus died and he remained in the grave, then that would be an indication to us all that the penalty had not been paid in full. Jesus would still be dead and we would still be under the penalty of death and the dominion of sin. Sixth and final consequence, those who have fallen asleep have perished. You see it there in verse 18. Paul says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then those who have trusted in Jesus, who have faithfully followed him, who have ministered in his name and have died, simply perished. Either they died and there was nothing, there was just a vacuum, a void, or worse, they died and they now meet God's judgment. And so these are the six consequences that Paul gives for assuming that Jesus had not been raised, has not been raised from the dead. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, these are the six consequences. But then notice this. Paul makes one final statement. It's found in verse 19, and really it's a summary of the six. In verse 19, Paul says, If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, there are some today who claim the Christian faith, but boldly deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. In fact, if you ask them if they believed in the resurrection of Jesus, they would say, well, yes, of course I do. But not in the sense that he like physically rose from the dead. I mean, of course, nobody's done that. And if you were to press them a little bit further, well, then what do you mean by you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? They would say something to the effect of, well, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus in the sense that I believe it inspires us today like the spirit of Gandhi or the spirit of Shakespeare inspires us today to do great things. The spirit of Jesus lives on in his teachings and in the things, in the historical records about his life. And you know, sometimes folks take that approach to the resurrection of Jesus in an attempt to make Christianity more palatable, more acceptable and accommodating to an unbelieving world. But notice what Paul says about that approach to Christianity here in these verses. Paul says that when one takes that angle, they are not just repackaging Christianity for a new day, but they have lost Christianity altogether. Paul would say, listen, you may be a religious or you may be a spiritual person, but in terms of what you are espousing, you may call it many things, but it is not Christianity. Because the Christian message hinges on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, Paul would go so far as to say, if Jesus has not been raised, all this Christianity stuff is absurd. That we are most to be pitied. And here's the reason why. When Jesus died and when Jesus rose again, Jesus issued forth a call. 
He said, take up your cross and follow me. If you lose your life like I did, you'll save it. And if you die like I did, you will be raised. And listen, there are many people by the grace of God in this room who have answered that call. And some of you have been rejected by family. And some of you have made tremendous financial sacrifices in order to see the gospel go forth. And some of you are choosing to live in hard places or have gone to unreached people groups who have never heard the gospel because you believe this message. In fact, if we step outside of ourselves in our own experience, we know that Christianity Today actually reported in January of this year that last year was the worst year on record for Christians being persecuted worldwide. Last year, some 215 million Christians experienced high, very high, or extreme persecution. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, if, if, you, if only in this life you have hoped in Christ, if you've answered this call to follow Jesus, to take up your cross, to sacrifice, to lay down your life, to lose your life, and then in the end you gain nothing, it was all a farce, it was all a lie, it was all a fable, just a story made up, you are most to be pitied. You know, some people approach church like, oh, well, this will be a good opportunity to socialize with people, maybe help some people out. That's not how Paul thought about church. Paul would advise you that there are a lot of social clubs that you could join, that you could do all those things and not risk losing your life. That might be a better option. Paul says everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we have given ourselves to this message, if we've invested our lives and if we've put all, built all our hopes and dreams on it, and then it proves to be untrue, we are most to be pitied. But then Paul leads to our second main point. The certainty of Christ, of the Christian's resurrection. The certainty of the Christian's resurrection. Okay, so this is found in verses 20 to 28. Now notice what Paul does here. So transitioning from verse 19 to verse 20, after stating if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are most to be pitied, then Paul declares in verse 20, so that's a hypothetical, if Christ hasn't been raised, we're most to be pitied. But then following that, Paul makes a definitive declarative statement in response, in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So now Paul's done with the thought experiment. And Paul boldly declares what he believes to be true. And Paul has already, of course, built his case for this back in verses 1 through 11. That's what we looked at last week. Where he built his case for the historical reliability of Jesus' resurrection by appealing to Old Testament prophecies. This was prophesied hundreds of years ago and now we see it playing out in history. By appealing to his own testimony, I saw him. By appealing to the testimony of the other apostles and so many in the early church who also said that they had seen the resurrected Christ. And so based on these factors, Paul declares 
Christ has been raised from the dead. And now he says, okay, let's assume Jesus' resurrection is true. If his resurrection is true, which in fact the Corinthians had previously affirmed when he was with them, if Jesus' resurrection is true, now Paul makes the argument that if his resurrection is true, then the resurrection of the Christian is certain, and not only certain, it is inevitable. In other words, if Jesus has been raised, we can be absolutely certain that we will be raised with him. And then, and this is where we're going now, he gives briefly four factors that point to the certainty and the inevitability of of the Christian's resurrection. Look there in verse 20. The first one is the concept of first fruits. First fruits. He says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits was a term that was used in the Old Testament. It referred to believers giving to God uh, what was first, what they first had earned, or the best of what they had. But not only was the concept of first fruits a call to give God our first, to give God our best, it was also, first fruits were also a promising sign of what was to come. So, think about it this way. Some of you, I know, have gardens, and I imagine if you have a garden, you've already started your garden for this season. And if you're gardening and you start to have, like, the the first things that come forth, you know, like a tomato or something like that, or a few of them, and the first ones are kind of wilted and small and they're not very tasty, then you would be concerned. Because that might be a sign of what's to come. But if the first ones are big and they're juicy and they're flavorable. I don't know if that's a word or not, but if they're, if they're good, they taste good, they're tasty, then you'd be excited, right? You might even like, you, you might even tell your friends or you might even call some people and ask them to get ready to help you to can tomatoes this year because you're going to have a bumper crop. The first fruits are a sign of what's to come. And here's what Paul is saying. In Jesus being raised from the dead, it is a first fruit. It's a pledge. It's a sign of what's to come. And if Christ has been raised from the dead and our resurrection is to be a reflection of his, oh, my friends, how glorious it will be. All that we have to look forward to. If Christ has been raised... This is the pledge, this is the sign of what's to come. Then we can rejoice and take great hope in our future resurrection. The second second factor that points to the certainty and inevitability of the Christian's resurrection is union with Christ. Union with Christ. Look there in verses 21 and 22. Paul says, For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So this is helpful to think about. What do we normally, if we see someone or we know someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, what do we normally refer refer to them as? What do we call them? Maybe we call them disciples. Might call them believers might call them Christians. All of those things are good things. Those are biblical terms to use to identify someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. But you know in the New Testament, none of those terms are the most common 
name or label used to identify those who are followers of Jesus. The most common is the phrase, in Christ. In fact, believers are referred to as those who are in Christ over a hundred times in Paul's 13 letters. We are in Christ. We are in him. It's over and over and over again we find it in the New Testament. And here what Paul says is that naturally we are in Adam. Just as Adam sinned, we also sin. And just as Adam died for his sin, we also will die for our sin. As sure as we are sinners, death is certain and inevitable. But now, Paul says, through faith in Jesus, something has changed. We are in Christ. And just as Christ conquered sin... And was raised, we too will be delivered from the penalty of sin. And we too will be raised with him to live forever. Resurrection, Paul says, is inevitable. And here's the reason why it's inevitable. Because now it's so interwoven with your identity. You are in Christ. He died, so we have died. Our old man has been put to death. He was raised, and we have been raised spiritually now and to come physically where we will live forever with Jesus. Our future is inextricably now linked with Jesus' future. And because we are in Christ, we can be certain that we will be raised with him. The third reason, third factor, pointing to the certainty and inevitability of the resurrection of Christians is the order of redemption. Look there in verses 23 to 24. Paul says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So you can follow the order here. The order of redemption that Paul lays out for us here is first, Christ is raised. Secondly, when he returns, those who are in Christ are raised. Then Jesus destroys every rule, every authority, every power that is opposed to him. Then, next step, Jesus yields the kingdom of of, uh, his kingdom to God the Father. So what Paul is simply saying here is that God has a plan. And each step will be executed just as he has purposed, each in its time. Because God never forgets a detail. He never misses a deadline. It will happen just as he has purposed. And then fourth, the fourth factor, and this is perhaps my favorite. The fourth factor that points to the certainty and the inevitability of the Christian's resurrection is the godness of God. The godness of God. That's not a word. I made it up, but it's okay. Verses 25 to 28. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. One of the things that's, that's striking here 
is that Paul, in writing the Corinthians about the, resu- about the resurrection and writing to them about the resurrection, he's not just concerned with how the resurrection affects us, the implications of it upon us. He is concerned with what the resurrection says about God. What does this teach us? What does it say about who God is that Jesus has been raised from the dead? And Paul teaches us in these concluding verses that God is both the source and the goal of redemption. He's the source of redemption in that he planned it. He is the goal of redemption in that redemption's purpose is to point and to head to the the end goal of him being all in all, as verse 28 says, of him reigning supreme. And Paul is addressing this issue If the redemption is to lead to the reality that God is supreme, that he rules and reigns, that he is all in all over all things, then there cannot be any unconquered nemesis wandering around the universe. There cannot be any enemy that has not been conquered and finally defeated. And death is an enemy. In Psalm, he cites it here in Psalm 110, verse 1, and in Psalm 8, 6, there we have this prophetic word that God must be, that all things must be put under subjection to Jesus' feet, to the feet of the Messiah who was to come. And so by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done is he's broken the back of death and he rules over it in victory. Jesus is raised, and therefore all those who are in Jesus are raised as well. So what Paul is saying here is that to deny the resurrection of Jesus is to deny the godness of God. It's to deny that in the end, God will be all in all, that he will rule and reign over all things because there will still be an enemy that he has not yet conquered. And Paul says that is impossible because of who God is, Because of his word that has declared his supreme and sovereign reign over all things, it is impossible that there would be an enemy like death that he has not yet conquered. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can be assured, we can be assured that death has finally been subjected to the reign of Christ and that he will reign supremely over it in glory and in power. Jesus says, or Paul says, for all these reasons, the resurrection of the Christian is certain and inevitable. Because of the concept of first fruits, because we are in Christ, because of the order of redemption, and because of the godness of God. The resurrection, in these ways and in so many other ways, is the ultimate game changer. For you, for me, for the cosmos. But it has to be personally received and embraced. You know, there's a movie out right now entitled The Case for Christ. I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know if it's any good or not. But it's the story of Lee Strobel. He was a committed atheist and actually an award-winning legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. Years ago, he began an investigative research project on the resurrection of Jesus. 
And when he began that project, he had every intention of demonstrating to the world that the resurrection of Jesus was a farce. But through the process of extensive research and investigation, Lee Strobel became convinced of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it changed everything in his life. He was never the same. In fact, he went on to become one of the most well-known Christian apologists in the United States over the last 20 years. He's authored many books, speaks all around the world. The resurrection was a game changer for Lee Strobel. I have a friend of mine, his name is Ryan Townsend. He studied uh, philosophy at Georgetown University. And just after he had graduated from Georgetown, he was an atheist. And he was committed to a philosophy of life that basically said there is no purpose in life. And there is nothing after life. Therefore, live for pleasure. Live for as much pleasure as you can while you can. But about that time, his mother became a Christian. And he was concerned about that. And she was attending this Christian church. And there was a new pastor there. And so he thought, well, I'm going to attend this church. Because my, li- my, my mom's life's been changed. And she's gotten into all this stuff. So he wanted to check it out. And he wanted to go to the church. And he really wanted to meet the pastor. Because secretly, he believed that if he could just do some kind of philosophical jiu-jitsu on the pastor, then surely the pastor would be doubting this Christianity thing in no time. And so he started attending the church, and he started actually meeting some real Christians, and um, he actually had an opportunity to meet the pastor, and the pastor gave him a book on the resurrection of Jesus. Long story short, he continued to attend the services for a little while. He continued to center to Christian preaching. He started reading his Bible a little bit. He started interacting with Christians, and he became convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was converted and his life was changed forever. That happened about 20 years ago. And now he is the leader of a national and international ministry that promotes biblical healthy churches in the States and all over the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the ultimate game changer in his life. And my friends, these types of stories could be told over and over and over and over again countless stories. It's the story of the Apostle Paul, right? On the road to Damascus. He's going to destroy and stamp out the church forever, but he sees the resurrected Christ and the history of the world has never been the same. How about you? Do you understand the magnitude, the significance, the importance of what Paul is speaking about here? The importance of the resurrection of Jesus. My friends, the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event that's ever happened in the history of the world. Everything hinges on it. Where do you stand in relationship to it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's clear and um, realistic perspective on the resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, we see as he has laid out before us that 
if, if we buy into this thing and it's not real, we, we are most to be pitied. But Father, we praise you that Christ has in fact been raised. And we thank you, Father, for your word that speaks to that so clearly. We thank you even for the historical evidences that point to it. And Father, I pray that for each person in this room here today, that our lives would be totally invested in the reality of Jesus Christ, him crucified and him raised. Father, we thank you that this life is not pointless and meaningless, but that history has a purpose and we're headed somewhere. It has a goal because Christ has been raised from the dead. We thank you that we have hope in the gospel, that our sins have truly been paid for, that we have hope in the life to come, that the things that we engage in in this life will not just finally vanish in a vacuum of darkness, but matter for eternity. Father, we praise you for the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would change lives this morning by the power of that resurrection. And we pray that our lives would continue to be changed by the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.